Well, we're continuing this uh, amazing insight into Jesus's prayer. Jesus has just shared that great, what could be classified as the greatest sermon to his disciples. And now he is praying what could be described as one of the greatest prayers that have been prayed. Last week, when we were looking at this passage, we were looking at the first uh, five verses. And this is when Jesus was uh, praying for himself. And, and last week, I just want to quickly go through the, the key points that we identified there. We identified the key points that uh, Jesus is glorified. And Jesus was glorified by his work on the cross. Jesus was glorified by the work that God gave him to do, which he did, coming to this world, living a sinless life, being the sacrifice of the sins of his people on the cross. Jesus was glorified by going back to be with the Father. And we realize that Jesus' glorification is an eternal glory. Jesus was glorified with God the Father before the world even began. And Jesus will go on to be glorified with God the Father for all eternity. But Jesus came out of the glory of that communion of being in the presence of God to this world so that people could come to know Jesus as their saviour. And that big element of the glorification was done on the cross And we see that Jesus had authority over all flesh, all flesh being sin there. Jesus' work on the cross broke the power of sin, broke the curse of sin, and has made a way for the Lord's people to be brought back to him. There is a people that belong to Jesus, and these people have an eternal life, and that's the glorification of the cross. And then we saw that the chief end of Jesus was to glorify God the Father. And then we went on to realize that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so just very, very practically, we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we pray for ourselves? How are you praying for yourself? What is the makeup and the nature of your prayers for yourself? Because we should be praying for the glory of God. That's what Jesus was doing. When he was praying for himself, he was praying for God the Father to be glorified. Our desires and our supplications and our prayers must be in line with our personally glorifying God. That's what our prayer should be about, bringing glory to God. And for sure that does mean that we can bring our anxieties and our requests. Yes, it does mean that we can uh, come before God with our needs. These are all things that are right. But the, 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 the driving thought that should be running through our lives and running through our prayers is what was running through Jesus. And that was to glorify and bring glory to God. So this first section is Jesus praying for himself. But but now we're moving on to this second section. And the second section is a section we just read together, verses 6 to 19. And, And this section is Jesus and he's praying for his apostles. 
Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly say here, now I'm going to pray for my disciples. Now I'm going to pray for my apostles. But the the context of the passage is, is very, very clear. And I just want to underline that right now with verse 11. And Jesus says, while I was with them, that's got to be the disciples, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And Judas is alluded there as the son of destruction. So we can really very clearly see that this prayer was originally prayed for the apostles. It's originally prayed for Jesus's disciples, the 11 that were around him, the 11 that were entering in. So first and foremost, this prayer was going to God the Father. The disciples were listening in as a corporate prayer, as we thought last week, and he's praying for those 11 that were around him. Now, although this was explicitly prayed for the apostles, there is a sense in which it was prayed for all disciples of Jesus. And when I I came to this passage this week, when I was working out where it would go in my mind, how I would uh, preach it as I was praying through it, I, I thought that what would be helpful just by way of introduction would be to look at some of the true marks of a disciple as is set out in this passage and I was thinking that that would just be a little quick introduction. Well as I got into these uh, true marks of a disciple I realized that actually that was going to be a full sermon. So God willing we're going to break this section down into two parts not looking at a certain number of verses this week and a certain number of verses next week but this week we're looking at this at this passage as looking for the marks of a true disciple, which is really important. I'll explain why in a moment. And then next week, we will look at the actual requests and supplications that Jesus was praying for on behalf of his disciples. Now, there is the answer why it's important to know what a true disciple is. This prayer is only for the apostles back then and now for us in the sense of true disciples. This amazing prayer that is outlined here in these verses uh, from 6 to 19 and not for everybody. These requests, these beautiful supplications, this thing that Jesus is asking for is for his true disciples. And so we're going to look at what this passage tells us about a true disciple. So the heading is Marks of a True Disciple. And you'll have some clues in your mind if you're listening to the children's talk earlier. Uh, And and so we have six points we're going to have here. And, And the first one is this. A true disciple is given to Jesus by the Father. A true disciple is given to Jesus by the Father. And we see that in verses 6, 7 and 9. You're making a decision for Christ did not save you. Now some of you might be thinking, did I hear that right? 
I'll say it again. Your decision for Christ did not save you. Now, if you don't like this, or if you're scratching your head at this, we need to understand the wonder of verse 6. You see, I, I don't say this to be uh, controversial. I, I don't say this to upset you. What I want to do is I want us to look from God's word and realize that a true disciple is given to Jesus by the Father. So let's look at this verse 6. We need the help of the Holy Spirit and I pray that we will be able to understand it because if you, if you don't like it, it's probably because you don't understand the wonder of this verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me. Your making a decision for Christ didn't save you. You made a decision for Christ because God has taken you out of this world and given you to Jesus. If your emphasis on what you have done to earn your salvation, you're pushing God to a position that he shouldn't be in. God should be at the centre of our salvation. It's God that planned salvation before time began. It's Jesus who was there with him before time began. And they discussed and they planned and, and they worked it out. And God chose his people and gave them to Jesus. God has taken you out of this world and given you to Jesus. Now, you're making a decision is part of the process, but it's not the bit that saves you. We are saved. We've been taken out of this world because God did it. And God has given us and given the disciples then to Jesus. And so I think it would just help us to, 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 to dig a bit deeper into that expression when Jesus says, out of this world. What, what, what's, what's going on here? And in the New Testament, we hear that the expression world, there's a very often three main meanings. And, and that is, in the first sense, the physical world, this world that we are living in, this, this sphere that is here. And then sometimes when we see the world there is actually the inhabitants, the, the people of the world, mankind, if you like. So we have the physical world, we have mankind as, as a reference of world, and then we have figuratively the, the inhabitants of the world, but morally. So, so basically the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men who are alienated from God and hostile to the cause of Jesus, that is the world. So you sometimes hear about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and, and the world there is all the inhabitants, all those who are alienated from 
God. You see, everyone who is born into this world is born into that whole mass of men, of mankind, who are alienated from God. And to, to really get to grips with this, to really understand this, you have to go back to the very, very beginning. And John did that in the beginning of his uh, gospel, didn't he? He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And, and if you go back to Genesis, and uh, the first part of Genesis, you realize that the Word was there, and Jesus was there, and, and the world was spoken into existence over those six days. And after each day of creation, God looks on his world and declares it as being good. The world, when it was created, was perfect. Everything was perfect. And when he got to the sixth day and after he made man, after he made Adam, and then after he brought Eve from the rib of Adam and he had man and woman there, God looked on and said, this is very good. And so God created perfection, a perfect world. And within that perfect world was a perfect mankind. And that mankind were living in a relationship with God. But as part of being perfect and being created perfect, Adam and Eve had the choice. You see, because they were perfect, they could continue in their perfection or they could choose to do their own thing. They could continue in perfection, God's standard, a relationship with him, no sin, or they could do their own thing. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 to 17, God gave only one rule to Adam in the whole garden where he was living in perfection. God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And chapter 3 of Genesis, right there at the very, very beginning, tells us of how Adam and Eve chose to ignore God's commandment. It tells us how they chose to ignore God's warning and they rebelled against God and they went their own way. They were tempted and they ignored God and they ignored his commandment and they ignored the warning and they went in their way of their own wisdom, in their own understanding and they rebelled against God and they took that fruit and they ate that fruit and the moment they did that, They changed, the world changed, and their relationship with God changed. They became alienated from God. In the beginning, they had a perfect relationship. God came down and spoke with them at the end of the day. Uh, And they had a tiring day, and then Jesus came down, and God came down, and, and they were there together. And then everything changed. Because Adam and Eve, through their sin, had pushed God away. And God said to them, if you eat that, you shall surely die. 
And effectively, in that moment, although physically they did not die, spiritually they did die. And that's where everyone is now. The moment that sin entered into the world, not only did physical death enter this world, which we see around about us in this hurting world, but at that moment, spiritual death entered in and there was an alienation between God and his created mankind. And his created mankind wanted to be gods themselves and they pushed God away. And so not only did Adam and Eve lose their sinless perfection, their bodies started to show age, and they died, and every single human being since then has physically died. And the trees die, and things rot, and the world was cursed, and now we're under that curse, and and COVID is a direct result of Rebellion against God all those years ago. There would have been no COVID if there was no sin. There'd be no famine or starving in this world if there were no sin. There'd be no death in this world if there was no sin. But the worst thing is their relationship with God was broken. They're alienated from God. And as we look around this amazing world and see incredible things, we realise that this world cannot heal itself and make itself perfect again. Perfection, once it's become imperfect, can never work its way back to perfection. And once someone has been alienated from God, they cannot reconcile themselves to God themselves. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night and he wanted to, to know about these things. And Jesus said to him like this, you have to be born again. And in this passage we see it in the language of being taken out of this world. This world, the grip of sin, this world's spiritual death has a grip on us. We cannot save ourselves, but God has made a way. And God's way is to take people out of this world and to give them to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles knew this in verse 7. It says, and now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. And that's their mark of being a true believer. That's their mark of being a true apostle. That's their mark of being a true disciple. That they knew that. They knew that God had given them to Jesus. They knew that their salvation wasn't anything that they had done for themselves. They knew that they had been made right with God because of God and that they had been given to Jesus. And Jesus went on to explain why this was so important. In verse 9 he says, I am not praying for the world. 
He's not praying for all the sinful people in the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And this is an amazing prayer. And we're going to get back to this amazing prayer next week. But this prayer is only for those that God has given to Jesus. It was for the apostles back then, and it is for all true disciples now. And so there's a question that I have in my mind, and, and, I, and I, maybe it's your, in yours too. What, what happened that took these 12 men from being in the world, alienated from God, to be given to Jesus as his disciples? What was that process? We see secondly, a true disciple has the Father revealed to them by Jesus. A true disciple has the Father revealed to them by Jesus. Verses 6, 8 and 14. Jesus says, I have manifest your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Verse 6, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And verse 14, I have given them your word. Over three and a half years, Jesus was living, breathing alongside the disciples. They were his disciples. They were following him. They were being taught by him. And it's very clear from this passage that what Jesus was teaching them wasn't his own agenda. But Jesus was teaching them what the Father had given him to him to teach to them. You see, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this Trinity, work together in unity. God has given his children to Jesus, and Jesus has provided his way for his children to come to God the Father. And part of that is for Jesus to to teach them, teach those apostles back then. The word manifest is much deeper than just teaching. It is to make actual and visible, to make actual and visible, or in other words, to make known by teaching. But it's, it's not just giving information, it's showing information. It's to make manifest, to, to see it. Maybe you could put it like this. You can learn about an experiment in your science textbook, and you can read about it. But it's made manifest to you when the chemistry teacher pours the two chemicals together and the reaction happens in front of your eyes and then you see it and it's manifest before you. When it's just there in the book, you can learn it, but it's made manifest in the experiment in the, in the uh, lab. And, and so Jesus is not just making words known to his disciples by teaching. He was showing the disciples who who God was by his actions too. Jesus showed the disciples the power of God through his miracles. Jesus showed the love of God to his disciples by coming to this world and showing his own love to the disciples. And in turn, his own love was translated and seen by the disciples as God's love. The forgiveness of God was demonstrated by Jesus' example and Jesus' teaching and Jesus' compassion and Jesus' love for people. The wisdom of God was, was shown by how Jesus answered questions, how he wasn't tripped up by the scribes and the Pharisees. His wisdom was shown by how he explained the deep mysteries 
of the gospel. He taught them about God in opening up the Old Testament and showing them God there. He explained things to them through the parables and pointed them to God the Father. Jesus it is who through the power of the Holy Spirit brings us to salvation. How are we saved? We see Jesus in God's word. And Jesus teaches us through God's word, just like he taught the disciples. And the Holy Spirit makes it alive and real in our hearts. Those disciples back then had the privilege and the wonder of being one-to-one with Jesus. But Jesus also went on to say to them, look, it's going to be better for you when I leave because the Holy Spirit's going to come and all the things that I have taught you, you're going to really understand and learn. And that's where we are now. Jesus has taught us and is teaching us through his word and the Holy Spirit comes in. So essentially, whilst Jesus was on this earth, he was showing the disciples their need of salvation. He was showing them that they were in this world, this sin-sick world, and they needed a saviour. He was teaching them the way of salvation. He was pointing them to God the Father, who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So how did the disciples receive that salvation? God brought them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. Jesus taught them and pointed them to God. But how were they saved? How did they receive their salvation? How do we receive our salvation? The responsibility is ours to respond in belief. Thirdly, we see a true disciple believes and keeps Jesus' teaching. A true disciple believes and keeps Jesus' teaching. Verses 6 and 8, or if the children are still listening, and I hope you are, children, this is it. Believe is to trust, and to keep is to obey. True disciples trust and obey Jesus' teaching. There were lots of people back then who heard the teaching of Jesus. At one stage, there were lots of people following him. And then then he came out with some hard sayings and lots of them left. It was only those that truly believed that were saved. The second part of verse 8 shows us this clearly. And it said, and they have received them. That's the word. And have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Salvation in our lives happens when we realise we have a need 
Our need is the problem of our sin. Our sin is alienating us from God and that sin needs to be dealt with. And how can that sin be dealt with? It's dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son left heaven and came to this world and he came to pay the price of the sins of his people. And that's what you need to believe. You need to believe that God sent his Son, Jesus, to do this work. But you see that the disciples didn't just receive this word. Over time they came to know this word as truth. And friends, we have to remember that. Some people, their their conversion is almost instantaneous. And some people it takes time. It doesn't matter what way it takes. It can be a process. But over time, these over these three and a half years, these disciples came to know the truth. And they came to know the truth was from God. And they came to know that Jesus was God's Son, the Saviour, the Messiah, the Chosen One. And they came to know and realise fully that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins. Their sins were nailed to that tree and they were made right with God. They came to know, as Jesus had already said to them, that he is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd know me, you'd know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And how had they seen the Father? They'd seen Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is the way, the truth and the life. He is a way of salvation. He is the truth. He gives life because he gave up his own life. Jesus made God manifest to the disciples and they came to know God for themselves through Jesus and they believed. They believed. That's how salvation happens in the life of someone. We believe We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that Jesus came to this earth because he was sent by the Father. And by believing the Son, we come to know the Father. The sin that alienated these disciples from God was dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Jesus was born into this world sinless. Jesus, unlike Adam, did not choose to rebel. Jesus, throughout his life, chose to do the Father's will. He never sinned. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And a true disciple, believing in the word, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins, their belief is shown in action. Verse 6, it says, And they have kept your word. These were true disciples because they not only believed, but their belief had translated into action. Kept your 
word. I was talking to the children about testing gold. I mentioned that they, they put a hallmark on gold to show that it's real. That's because the actual proper, proper test for, for gold after having a magnet on it involves acid and things. And it's not, not a test you would do yourself at home. And so it's done uh, in, in, in laboratories. It's done in, in, in goldsmiths' places uh, to test if it's real. And it's called the acid test. And it distinguishes the real gold from the non-gold. And I think the acid test of whether someone is a true disciple of Jesus is are they trusting and obeying? Are they believing and keeping Jesus' teaching? It's not just good enough to say you believe it, but are you keeping it? Is that translating into how you are living? The passage there is talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. Also, in that same chapter there, talks about love and obedience. If we truly love Jesus, we will be obedient. We'll be endeavouring to walk in his ways. And maybe you're thinking, I, I, I want to trust and I want to obey and I do trust and I do obey. But there's so many times when things go wrong and, and, I, and I don't obey like I should obey. And let's take a step back and remember, fourthly, that a true disciple is kept by Jesus Verse 12, a true disciple is kept by Jesus. It's not our trusting and obeying that keeps us. That's a sign of us being kept, but it is Jesus that keeps us. And maybe those disciples back then, those apostles back then, were wondering, what if I'm going to be like Judas? What if I'm going to be like the others who've heard, and then when things get difficult, we're going to leave? And then Jesus' words explained why they hadn't left Jesus. In verse 12 it says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus looks after his own. Sometimes in our household, the precious item of the mobile phone is lost. It got misplaced. It got put somewhere. And everyone has to, to find it because we don't want to lose our mobile phone. We don't want to lose our wedding ring when we take it off. We don't want to lose these things that are precious to us. And sometimes in our lives you possibly lost something that is precious to you. And you've been upset by a, a laptop that's gone missing or a document that's gone missing or a, a piece of jewellery that's gone missing. Well, Jesus never lets his disciples get lost. Jesus looks after his own. Once he's begun a good work, he will complete it. And, and if it were left 
to our own trusting and obeying, it would be completely hopeless. But it's not. Jesus keeps his own. And despite the great challenges that these disciples faced, they all made it to the end. And and 2,000 years on that gives us great confidence, doesn't it? Jesus' disciples were kept faithful to the end. Why? Because Jesus was keeping them. Jesus kept them in this world, and as we'll see later in his prayer, he hands that responsibility on to God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is with us now, and through God we are kept to the end. A true mark of a disciple is they're kept by Jesus. A true mark of a disciple is they're kept to the end, trusting and obeying, not by their trusting and obeying, but by their Saviour who has bought them and brought them into his kingdom. We see, fifthly, that a a true disciple is set apart by Jesus. A true disciple is set apart by Jesus. Verses 14 and then 17 to, to 19. Jesus goes on to underline the difference between a true disciple and anyone else. Verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We we get given, the disciples then got given a status that Christ had. Christ was not of this world. Christ came in from glory to this world and then was going on to glory. And Christ is saying to his disciples, you are now not of this world because you are going on to glory. You're going on to heaven to be with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. And they've been changed. The, the letter to the Ephesians puts it like this, you become seated in heavenly places. Yes, we're in this physical earth, but we're no longer of this earth. We have become subjects of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're no longer subjects to this world. We're no longer caught by the world, the flesh and the devil. Jesus's disciples are set apart. And this can bring very real challenges in this life. The reason the disciples were going to get a hard, difficult time was because the world would hate them. The world would hate them. This doesn't mean that everyone who's not a disciple hates people that are disciples. No. But the general tenor of the world is this. The world is against Christ. And the world is against Christ's people because they have the same identity, the same destiny as him. They are gods. And that will mean that someone who is a true disciple, there will be difficulties and challenges in this world and in this life. Jesus said, in, in the backdrop of his ending, the summary of, of the sermon before he starts this prayer, he talks about them and says, there will be tribulation, but I'll give you my peace. I've overcome the world. 
And this tribulation, these persecutions, these challenges are because we have been set apart. The disciples were set apart. The disciples did great things for God. The disciples had great moments of joy. Part of what Jesus praised them, as we'll read later, is is for them to have joy in their lives, and they do. But there were difficulties and there were challenges. And this explains why there is persecution in this world. The world hates Jesus' people, Jesus' disciples, because they are not of the world just as jesus is not of the world and if you think that your christian life is all about your comfort now it's all about smooth sailing now you have a wrong understanding of what salvation is all about salvation about has been made right with god and be made like Christ. And if you're right with God, be made like Christ, the world will hate you. And that hatred will mean there will be difficulties and challenges in this life. But this life is not what it's about. This life leads us to glory. And the disciple is effectively set apart for God. And God willing, next week when we look at this prayer, we will see what Jesus prays about this subject further. In verse 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concentrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. And We'll look at those requests later, but we'll just suffice it to say now. A true disciple is set apart by Jesus. But lastly, and in closing, we see, sixthly, a true disciple glorifies Jesus. And this brings the whole prayer back to that common theme, doesn't it? It brings us back to what we were thinking at the end of our sermon last week. In verse 10, Jesus says, All mine are yours. And yours are mine. Just showing the beauty of the Godhead here. God the Father and God the Son. Equally together there. All is mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Doesn't that take your breath away? Jesus is glorified by his true disciples. And think about what's about to happen. Just put it into this context. These disciples were about to fall asleep when they should have been praying. These disciples should have been those who were comforting their master when he was sweating drops of blood. These were the disciples that were about to run away in fear. They were about to be totally confused, totally disillusioned, going into a room, hiding away. And then after three days, some of them were leaving the city because they thought it was all over and all finished. And yet it's these people It's these people that Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Isn't that breathtaking? Jesus works beyond their failings, beyond their 
their challenges and their difficulties. And Jesus is glorified. He's glorified in his work of salvation in their hearts and their lives, making them his children. He's glorified by them living holy lives, which they go on to do. God is even glorified in the sense that when they sin and he restores them and brings them back, God is glorified. Jesus is glorified when these men that were fearful then start having bold professions of faith, proclaiming who Christ is and going forward in a way that they could not have ever imagined themselves doing themselves. But Jesus is glorified in them when they're empowered to do that. Jesus is glorified in them when they reach out to others a true disciple glorifies Jesus I want to leave you with these questions are you living for yourself or are you living for Jesus what is more important to you your comfort or Jesus' glory. A mark of a true disciple is they will glorify Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is working in them to his own glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fullness of your word. We thank you for this amazing prayer. We thank you for what we are learning about the marks of being a true disciple. Oh Lord God, may everyone here this morning be able to see themselves as true disciples. Maybe even if it's just at the very beginning of the process, coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour or maybe later on in the process, in trusting and obeying and growing in that way. May we all be encouraged by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ will keep us. And in doing so, he will be glorified and we will bring glory to God through it. Oh Lord God, help us in these things we pray. May we understand them through the power of your spirit. May you apply them into our lives. And may we be those who bring glory to your name, now and forevermore. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen.